been amazing building local power today. We have several subjects that we're probably going to have to cut short because they are so interesting and we're so interested in them, but we're going to try and get through all of them. We're going to talk about AT&T and Time Warner, something that we teased you about a few months ago and never got back to. We're going to talk about how a certain utility policy regarding renewable energy may seem like a quick win, but could be a real bad problem. And then we're going to talk about cashless retail and some uh, Amazon interesting moves. So uh, we're going to talk about all that stuff with me, Chris Mitchell, who runs the broadband program at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We got Stacy Mitchell from the Portland office. Hey, Chris. Hey, John. And we got John, John Farrell, the head of the energy program. Hey, Chris. Hey, Stacy. And we're not going to rehash 5G, which I wanted to do, but it turns out we talked about that in episode 57. So if you're really interested in that, that was a fun conversation. Hibba and I talked about at the end of our talk. Um, but we're going to start off by talking about um, some of the, the mergers in telecom because there's been a few interesting revelations lately. Um, and so, Stacy, I'm wondering if you maybe want to just set a little bit of background as to, you know, why you found it interesting, this AT&T attempting to purchase Time Warner, which owns CNN and HBO, but is not Time Warner Cable. This is, uh, is, is uh, AT&T buying a company that has a lot of content. Why is that interesting for me? your perspective? Well, you've got this vertical merger where you have a company that owns a lot of pipelines for distribution buying a company that has a lot of content. And it raises questions about how AT&T, for example, might use control of that content to disadvantage companies that it competes with. Um, the merger went through. The government did actually, interestingly, oppose it, but it was ultimately approved by a judge. Um, and that, that final decision, I think, came down just a few weeks ago. You know, Stacey, one of the, the things that we always come back to when we're talking about these issues of concentration and mergers is whether the government is making a case for stopping it on the right grounds. Uh, what am I talking about? One of the things that's gone wrong with antitrust is it's all been built around these incredibly narrow economic models where they try to predict what will happen in the future if a merger goes through. And there are these incredibly complex models that you know hinge on a lot of different assumptions. And you know, in this case, the government used that approach to say we're going to see you know an increase in consumer costs down the road, and that became very easy. Uh, I think, for proponents of the merger to argue against instead of arguing the government arguing on broader structural terms about what this would mean for competition overall, um, they instead sort of tried to make this narrow price argument that was, you know, sort of put the whole their whole case on very flimsy footing. And indeed, they they ended up losing uh, in court. Right. Our models are, are much simpler, which is based on all of known history, which is that as these companies become less accountable to us, they screw their smaller rivals in the market, they raise our prices and generally harm our democracy. Um, the model's pretty simple from, from our perspective. I mean, I'm simplifying it more than it is, but that's more or less what we're looking out for, it seems like. 
Yeah, that's right. You know, there's a concept that used to be very operative in antitrust enforcement, which was this notion of market structure. So the idea was you kind of looked out there and and you didn't try to predict what was going to happen in the future so much as you said, is this look like a competitive market? Are there lots of companies? Is it easy for new companies to get started? You know, and you made a judgment based on that. And that to me seems like a much more effective and solid way um, to maintain competition. But that's part of what we really moved away from from in recent decades and what a lot of people are now calling, you know, that that should come back into play. So Chris, what can we learn from some recent news about whether or not this kind of predictive effort by the government when it comes to mergers is actually effective or not? Well, um, you know, not to not to rag on these well-meaning antitrust folks, but uh, when it came down to the AT&T DirecTV merger, a merger that many of us opposed saying that it was going to give AT&T much more power to raise costs and disadvantage its rivals in the market, um, that, that merger was approved. And um, AT&T has just raised the price of its uh, streaming uh, TV channel replacement package uh, in ways that it suggested in the merger filings it would never do uh, because it would only have an incentive to lower prices because it would have all these advantages of economies of scale by owning DirecTV as well as AT&T in that they would generate these savings. They'd pass it along to the consumer in order to, to sell more products in the marketplace. And um, I, I think that was maybe three years ago, and they've. This is the second time that they're raising prices on uh, this product. Um, and and frankly, now that they're going to get their hands on HBO, uh, we're very worried about the ability of them to deny high quality content to others. Um, you know that that may be fighting them in the marketplace. So, you know, I'm if if I was a company marketing a, a channel lineup, um, I wouldn't be able to put HBO in it, perhaps. And AT&T would say, well, we've got all the same channels that Chris does, but we also have HBO. Um, you know, and, and I think something, I don't know if you've been following this, Stacey. I know some of the people that you follow have been talking about it. But in some ways, I think it's a race as to whether or not AT&T's terrible management destroys HBO fast enough that it's not actually an advantage in the market anymore because it's not producing content people feel they must have. It's really depressing because, you know, HBO has been the absolute leader in this whole revolution and great television. I mean, the reason we're in this golden age of television, as everyone likes to say, is largely because of HBO. Um, and, you know, the AT&T seems really intent on transforming it away from that and into something else. And, you know, it's just a great illustration of what we lose when everything gets kind of rolled into these big big companies that make decisions, you know, not based on any commitment to the actual industries that they're part of, much less the people who work in those industries or the people who view that television that comes out of it. You know, could I just roll back to that previous conversation there about Chris was mentioning the AT&T DirecTV merger and that there's this discussion of economies of sale, of efficiencies of being large, and and how this is going to benefit consumers. And And I guess where I keep getting hung up is that it seems that the lesson over and over again is, why would they bother to pass the savings to consumers, right? There is, it doesn't seem that there is any, just because a company is big and just because they can produce something cheaply, there's no natural incentive to pass it along to customers. The natural incentive is to squeeze out as much profit as you can. And so I guess I just keep getting confused hearing about these mergers that companies can continue to talk about size as some sort of an advantage for consumers when it's really only competition that generates the incentive for businesses to lower prices. Well, 
I, I, one of the things that I've been asking people is whether or not there's been any head explosions in DC. Because if your worldview was premised on this idea of like, we're only going to approve mergers where it's going to lower prices and merger after merger that gets approved raises prices at a certain part, I would think you would have an existential crisis thinking my worldview just doesn't work. Like we're doing something horribly wrong. And, and I get the impression that a number of people are kind of discomforted by the empirical results that don't fit at all with the models that they generate. I think they kind of leave the, 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 F, the FTC, the DOJ, um, which the Federal Trade Commission, the Department of Justice, rather than trying to stick around and fight for better models. But I don't have a real sense of what's happening. I think it's really easy to be cynical. And, and particularly when we know that the Trump administration put its finger on the scale and said um, to the Department of Justice, you must fight this. We, we need to stop this merger. Um, and so, you know, uh, Stacey, one of the things that we conjectured about last year was whether or not the Trump administration, uh, Department of Justice, was fighting this merger for kind of good reasons or for corrupt ones. And we, we may not know, but the answer is either only corrupt ones or both corrupt and, and, um, and, and really because they believed it was a threat to the marketplace. It is a little remarkable that this is the only place where they have stood up uh, and taken, you know, and fought a merger, really, that you can point to. And of course, they're doing a lot of things that are helping big tech in various ways and other really dominant uh, corporations across a bunch of industries. So you do have to wonder, uh, this doesn't seem to be necessarily motivated by principle. That doesn't mean that it wasn't right to oppose the merger, that there weren't good reasons to do that. I think this discussion about the empirical evidence of what happens after these mergers is really important. You know, there's a, a guy, John Quoka, who's an economist at Northeastern University, who's actually gone back and done these detailed retrospective analyses of past mergers, like, well, what did happen? And he's found just repeatedly that the predictions that antitrust authorities made about what would happen in the future didn't come to pass. Instead of prices going down, prices went up, and there were other anti-competitive effects. I got to I got to look this guy up. Say his name one more time. John Quoka, K W O K A. Um right. he's got a book out and a bunch of studies. Um and it's led to a lot of people including some members of Congress, uh some of the uh, FTC commissioners uh calling for the agencies to actually systematically do their own retrospective analysis and so far they've been really resistant to that idea because I think they're going to find um that they that it forces a real reckoning internally with what they're doing. There's been a number of good articles. I think Carl Bode is always worth reading. Uh, other people who write on tech dirt on on this issue, um, but the federal government, in some ways, uh, had its hands tied behind its back by its own dumb policy, because the Department of Justice wasn't making an argument that AT and T could preference its own content um, in this in ways that would be um, deleterious to the market. Because the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission's policy, is that AT&T would never do things to preference its own content, that we do not need this policy called net neutrality that we've talked about before, which um, in some ways, and as we're talking about a number of these things, it's worth noting that these are principles that go back many hundreds of years in terms of who owns the pipes, shouldn't have a stake in what goes through it, um, this, these issues of 
common carriage is the word I'm looking for. And Richard Nixon was a huge fan of this and making sure that the broadcasters didn't own the programs uh, in the 70s. So, you know, this is not just some modern day left versus right kind of thing. It's, it's once again, the powerful against everyone and in a number of people who are just getting a lot of money um, to cynically promote um, the interests of big tech and pretend that it's a conservative position against, um, you know, a more liberal position, which is um, uh, opposing the mergers. I didn't hear anything you said because I was stuck on the fact that you said deleterious. Oh, that's <laughs> such a great word. <laughs> and, you know, as I was thinking, I was thinking, sound it out. Don't rush through this word. It's complicated. <laughs> Well, I like to know that you were also thinking about it. I want to jump into this issue of um, of utility handouts, and, and John, uh, we're going to let you speak for more than a few seconds in this segment. Um, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff in the news right now around PG and E. Uh, I just wanted to highlight that so you can maybe say a few words about it, point people to where you've written about it, and then we can talk about something that's fascinating and not in the news. Yeah, I mean, just very quickly, PG and E, one of the largest electric utilities in the country uh, recently declared bankruptcy, really for two reasons. One is, uh, and the catalyst for it was uh, climate-driven wildfires in California that have dramatically increased its cost and uh, raised its liability among its residents and businesses of California who, um, because it, it looks like they mismanaged the grid, essentially, uh, in, in terms of those wildfires being caused by their own infrastructure. Uh, and the second one is that competition is eroding. Uh, them because people who have the choice in California, because the government has created more competition, are choosing to move away from PG&E. And the lesson there really is when folks have a choice, good things happen in the market, which means a big, stuffy, stodgy utility company uh, goes into bankruptcy. And, and the challenge is going to be able to figure out what do you do with the grid system that it owns that still delivers energy for everybody, including the competitors. And that's where this piece that I wrote talks about, you know, this is the opportunity to have the grid as a commons. As you mentioned before, about owning the pipes versus the content, the electricity system for 100 years has had monopoly ownership where, where the owner has been the owner of both. And we're at a time, uh, a unique time in history in the technology of the electricity system with things like rooftop solar where we can move away from that. So uh, check out the piece for Green Tech Media I wrote on it. Um, but I would like to talk about a different issue that's going on with utilities um, that we need to address. You know, while everybody has been seeing news about PG&E, uh, you know, in the in the media and what's happening with that, there's been this other thing going on, particularly in New Mexico, that could have just far-reaching implications that's been much less uh, talked about. Tell us what that's all about, John. Yeah, so this is about a bill that recently passed in New Mexico. It hasn't yet been signed by the governor, but it's passed the legislature. Every indication uh, is that it will be signed into law called the Energy Transition Act. And we're going to see a lot more bills like this across the country. What it does is uh, set into law a date by which utilities must provide 100% carbon-free electricity, so no more fossil fuels. And it's hugely important. It's been driven by you know the, the sort of resurgence of the climate movement, by communities realizing that renewable energy is cheap and affordable and a great opportunity to uh, both do something good for the environment and for the economy. And the, the movement... The, the climate movement that has provided the political will in New Mexico and states like Minnesota or Illinois, where bills like this have been considered or passed in recent years, has really been focused on this broad opportunity to democratize the wealth in the energy system. You know, you saw that in marches in New York City and across the country around climate. You hear that from climate activists across uh, the United States and in other countries. And the problem is that these bills... Um, are unfortunately going in a completely different direction. 
It sounds like a bit of a Trojan horse. Well, and, and what I hear you saying, John, is that this is this is a really tricky issue in that, um, you know, it is it is resulting in something that we want. Um, but it, and it's our allies that in many ways have been pushing it through, but they've made a compromise that 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 we think could be really damaging. Exactly. You can check out a little bit more on this specific issue in a in a podcast interview I did for our local Energy Rules podcast with Mariel Nanasi, who's an uh, advocate and organizer in New Mexico. But what she outlines is essentially the utility got paid off in this case. We have a utility company. It's a monopoly. It's a government granted monopoly. It's been the only utility provider for much of the state for over 100 years. Sorry, John, can I just clarify something quickly that jumped into my head? Is this something, is this a state decision or is it a federal decision? No, this is a state decision. So the state could actually take a monopoly power away from uh, an electric provider. Yeah. And in fact, there's a bill in Maine to do that. And it also discussions in California around PG&E about maybe this is the time to make it a public utility. So that these monopolies were made by the state 100 years ago when there was competition. It was a wild west of an electric grid. And you, and, and states said, actually, this is not in the public interest. It, we're better off building a single grid, not multiple wires to each home, and to uh, capture the economies of scale that come with doing that monopoly. Right. I, did, I don't want to send us too far down that, but I think it's, it's always worth noting where a state can fix something and versus where the state's hands are tied by the federal government. Yeah, absolutely. And state, and, and that is, I think this bill in New Mexico raises kind of this big warning, right? So states are where energy policy not only is happening by default because the federal government is not acting around climate, but also it's the place where energy policy regulation has traditionally taken place is in states. Many states already have renewable energy goals and standards like this, uh, although not few as aggressive as we're seeing in recent years. And what this bill does essentially is it says to the utility, you have to give us 100% carbon-free electricity by 2050, by a certain date. But in exchange, all of those dirty fossil fuel power plants you have that were uneconomic and would probably have to close down anyway, we will pay you all of the profits you were expecting from operating that plant as long as you were expecting to run it. And there's a power plant in New Mexico that they had taken out an 85-year mortgage on. No power plant ever runs for 85 years, ever but they're now going to collect every cent of profit that they were expecting on an 85-year mortgage, which is absolutely atrocious. And then the second thing that's happening in, in this bill and in other bills, there's one in Minnesota, for example, that's under consideration, is that when they shut down the fossil fuel power plants in order to comply with the law, the utility now has the right of first refusal to own all of the replacement power. So whereas all of this excitement has been building in the climate movement and in clean, among clean energy advocates for a couple of decades now around the opportunity to have diverse and distributed ownership of renewable energy resources, to have lots of rooftop solar and community-based solar and wind projects owned by farmers, what this bill essentially says is that's all done. The utility monopoly we've had for 100 years that didn't really make sense in an area where we don't need a monopoly anymore is going to be cemented in law for another 30 years and throughout the entire transition to clean energy. And, and just to be clear, I, when you say replacement power, does that mean all new generation in its region or is that a, a term of art? Uh, it would mean all of the power that you would need in order to replace what you are shutting down in order to comply with the law. So in practically speaking, given that energy electricity consumption is not rising significantly, it means all. Uh, you know, there are some caveats there about the fact that we are electrifying vehicles we may start electrifying homes more, so energy production may rise or energy use may rise. But uh, practically speaking, we're giving the utility a huge, huge slice of the wealth that's going to be created in transitioning to clean energy. 
What do people say when you raise that argument? I mean, what do proponents who've been, you know, do they just say like renewable energy is so important that who cares that we're turning over control? Like what's the response? Well, there's two things here. One is that most people don't realize this is happening. The utilities already got a monopoly. For a lot of people, it's not terribly controversial to consider that they should keep the monopoly. Uh, they're not aware of the fact that it comes at a hefty price premium uh, that New Mexico advocates estimate it could cost 50% more, for example, to have solar projects owned by the utility than, than by uh, independent power producers. Well, they, they do say it's more expensive. So they're just demonstrating that they're correct. <laughs> right. What we often hear, unfortunately, is that the language of climate change and and, and climate crisis uh, is used against this notion that we need to fight back against utilities uh, claiming all of the wealth that's to be had from this. And that climate activists are essentially saying, well, if this is the price we have to pay in order to lock in saving the planet, then it's worth paying. And I think, unfortunately, what people don't realize is we can do better. And there are plenty of examples of that. Well, let me let me push you on that. What does it mean to do better? Like, aside from price, what's the problem with the utility owning a bunch of solar panels and, and wind turbines? There's nothing inherently wrong with utility owning renewable energy. And in many states, they own a lot of it. And that's totally fine. What it, The problem here is in precluding ownership by anybody else. That, you know, we're essentially saying we're not going to allow significant investments in community-based renewable energies where, you know, not just do we get a bunch of clean electricity, but I'm also, you know, reducing the energy bills of low-income customers or elderly folks, or I'm, you know, reducing the energy bills of a city, which is allowing us to lower taxes because we're reducing the energy bills of those municipalities. So there's all these different ways in which clean energy can, you know, create jobs in particular places that we would get to choose if the utility is not the one owning it. So it's really just about that, you know, core American value of choice and competition and, and markets, uh, as well as this opportunity to, to fundamentally change the fact that the people who have borne the greatest brunt of our energy system until now are those who have to live by the dirty power plants that the utility has owned and that the utility has generally not had to compensate for the health effects, for the environmental impacts, et cetera. And what we're saying unfortunately, is rather than take an opportunity that we have to say to those folks, you have been trashed on for decades, and we have a chance to fix that by allowing you a slice of this new clean energy economy. We're just going to continue to dump on you by taking all of the wind and solar resources that are in your area and send all the profits to Wall Street. It's also really striking that that control makes a difference. I mean, when you're looking at what we've seen about PG&E in California and the lack of maintenance that they've done that's put the state at risk of fires and other hazards, you know, in my state, there's a lot of concern about central main power not responding to outages very quickly and the consequences of that for people. I mean, there's a lot more at stake, I guess, given the track record that these utilities have on those kinds of issues and also on stalling on renewables for as long as possible. I mean, it just seems like they've lost their goodwill um, and to kind of trust them to own the system going forward strikes me as really risky. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, what where I would describe this largely is, is inertia, that people are used to the system the way it is. It's challenging to imagine the system being different. And therefore, that even though we're going through this remarkable transformation in terms of thinking about where our electricity is going to come from in the future. And even though that is transformative in and of itself, 
I think people are not willing to see beyond the fact that this utility company uh, is going to continue to own it. And, I, you know, the opportunity is so big. And what I want to highlight and not leave people with is this sort of negative thing of, look, the utility is out to take it all again. But that, you know, in Virginia, for example, out of Dominion Energy's dominance, the last time there were legislative elections there, a whole caucus sprung up of a legislators who committed to not taking money from the incumbent monopoly utility company so that they could focus on what is in the public interest. So we have an opportunity here. People are waking up to it. This is that, uh, that moment in many shows in which you get an ad. Um, sometimes in our shows, we go on for a long time, but uh, I'm going to keep it pretty short today, I think, or else I'll re-edit it later and you'll never know. Um, but we're, we want to get your feedback on how we're doing. Um, so we created an email address, podcast at ilsr.org. If you have ideas for shows or if you think one of us should be kicked off and never return, uh, send us a note at podcast at ilsr.org and we'll listen to it. We'll, we'll read it. We'll take it seriously. We'll debate it uh, and we'll improve our show, hopefully. Um, you can also support our work with a donation. Uh, that's essential to keeping us in good spirits and uh, having good equipment to record podcasts and do research. So if you want to make a donation, you can go to ilsr.org slash donate. Uh, we do thank everyone for supporting us. And uh, lastly, uh, be sure to leave a review. Uh, we haven't had as many reviews lately as we'd like. And uh, you know, if you have a chance to, to leave a review on iTunes in particular, uh, that'd be terrific. So so now we're going to come back to the show and we are going to jump into a story from Stacy that doesn't deal with Amazon immediately. And then we'll talk about Amazon afterwards. <laughs> I, you know, I'm a person who usually carries cash around. And, and in fact, I actually have uh, the credit card that I use the most from my local bank. I'm very conscious of using that if I'm going to pay by credit card for a local merchant because of how the the the, um, the fees that the credit card companies charge can really harm local merchants' profit margins. Um, but I understand there's a whole nother issue with something called cashless retail, and it seems to be springing up in, in Philadelphia, if I'm right. That's right. Yeah, there are a growing number of chains and other businesses that have gone cashless. So you can't actually pay in cash there. You have to use a credit or debit card. And that's become controversial in a number of places. So the state of New Jersey passed a law uh, requiring all businesses to accept cash. And the city of Philadelphia did as well, uh, a local ordinance. And now there are a lot of other cities that are looking at similar legislation. Um, the Most of the argument in favor of these policies has been focused on the fact that not everyone has credit cards, that there's a large segment of the population that's unbanked or underbanked um, and doesn't have access to those forms of payment. And that means, you know, there's sort of increasingly these places that they are locked out of. Um, but at ILSR, we have also begun to raise this other issue about cashless retail, which is that it gives a handful of really large banks and the credit card companies, you know, Visa and MasterCard, the ability to just skim a lot of money from the economy without providing much in return. I actually thought it was, um, I thought you were obligated as a merchant to take cash. I actually thought that was just part of doing business within the United States. And, and I, I wasn't alone in that belief. Several of our staff members were also surprised to learn about this. 
Yeah, you'd sort of think, well, it's legal tender. Can I use it anywhere? But uh, apparently that's not the case. Massachusetts, I believe, has an has an old law on the books that does mandate that. So it may be true in some places, but by and large, uh, it's not true. And, you know, we are seeing more uh, businesses go cashless and indeed there's some anticipation that this is a trend that could really take off quite rapidly, um, partly because, especially among younger people, they already use cards a lot. And there are companies uh, like Amazon uh, that are interested in building uh, stores that are, you know, really cashierless. And so there's no one to take your cash anyway. And so th- this trend really could explode. Uh, and it raises a lot of serious uh, uh, policy issues um, and in particular raises questions about, well, do we just allow these big banks to suck up essentially 2 or 3% of the entire consumer economy for doing nothing but transacting these, uh, these card purchases? Well, I remember that there was a, there's been a strategic effort by the card companies to make cash culturally unacceptable. Um, um, commercials in which, you know, everyone's sort of going smoothly through the lunch line and it's going really fast and then someone's trying to pay for cash and fumbling around and everything slows down and that's why you should use cash. So, you know, I find it interesting that there's a, a sort of a cultural effort in that direction. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I'd, I'd heard you talk about was that there's uh, some merchants have moved in that direction to avoid having cash on premise premises. And so that's maybe one reason, uh, I think probably a minority reason. But haven't there also been credit card companies that have been, you know, sort of seeking out merchants to give them special deals to only deal with credit cards to really sort of supercharge this movement? Yeah, I mean, Visa has done this where they've, you know, given uh, sort of grants or prizes to merchants uh, worth thousands of dollars if they go cashless. So clearly the card companies uh, and, the, and the banks that are the primary that issue most of the cards have big stakes in this. Um, you know, I think, you know, some businesses decide that it's more convenient not to deal with cash or that there are certain theft risks or whatever. And those things may be legitimate. Um, and the fact that people are unbanked, um, you know, I think really points to a deeper set of problems that we need to solve, that never, everyone needs to have access to the payment system, you know, in order to participate in the economy. So it's not that those issues should necessarily drive this, although they're, they're really important. I think the question is, you know, if this trend does continue, and in fact, it is effectively continuing even if businesses don't go cashless just because more and more people are using cards for more transactions. So this is a question even, you know, if you set aside the going completely cash-free at some stores, is as more and more of the spending kind of runs through this part of the banking system, you know, we're, we're letting uh, essentially these monopoly banks kind of skim off important parts of the profit. And should we step in and cap those fees? That's what Europe has done. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that, Stacey, because it seems you, could, you also have a sort of jurisdictional issue here. You have at the local level an ability to make a statement about whether or not you can go cashless or not. But we have a bigger and broader problem and also... I I guess I'm curious, at what level could you make a requirement about swipe fees? Because like you said, if banks are able to skim off the top here for a transaction cost that probably is in the, you know, tenths of a percent of the the cost as opposed to the two to three percent they charge, why don't we just go ahead and say, sure, you can charge a swipe fee, but it has to be commensurate with the actual cost to deliver the service? 
I'm fairly certain that that kind of policy would have to be implemented at the federal level um, because, you know, these banks are operating across state lines in the way that uh, federal banking regulators have preempted state authority. I'm fairly certain that that would have to happen at the federal level, though I'm not 100% positive. So at the moment, we have sort of cities stepping in because they recognize the needs of low-income customers who don't have credit cards and are sort of, uh, you know, in the trenches with this issue. And meanwhile, uh, as I think we see with a lot of issues, we have, you know, this need at the federal level that's going un- unaddressed, um, sort of forcing cities to scramble in ways uh, that, you know, kind of limit what their options are. I wanted to, to point out any time that I can, uh, when I have an opportunity to remind people about Mirsa Baradaran um, and her book, How the Other Half Banks, um, boy, it's it's really fascinating how many people are unbanked. And, uh, and I think it's important to think about those folks and their access to um, to the market economy. I also think it's worth remembering that we have significant surveillance and privacy issues in the modern economy. And one of the nice things about cash is that it's anonymous and you don't have people building profiles of you when you buy stuff in cash. Um, but that said, uh, I think we're done not talking about Amazon. <laughs> and and I'm you, curious. You saw how I wove them in there, though. <laughs> oh yes, yes. We didn't get too far away from from Amazon, but Amazon does remain, um, you know, one of the the big threats on the horizon, doing a lot of different things. Um, and you know, even today, I was listening to a podcast from National Review in which they were kind of belittling um, Amazon as a threat to the economy and how, you know, the, the gr- there's so many grocery stores and Kroger's is doing better now because they're having to respond to the threat. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people who still need to learn more deeply about the what's going on here. Um, I think, Stacey, you have a couple of interesting things that are illustrating some of the harms that we fear will get worse and in, in, in the nature of Amazon's predatory tactics. It's interesting. One of the things that we've been monitoring is how much Amazon is lobbying and influencing government. And we saw this play out in the cashless ordinance in Philadelphia. Uh, Amazon lobbied quite heavily on that. And as it turns out, didn't actually register its staff people as lobbyists. So now it's in a bit of trouble over that. And the final ordinance, as it was passed, includes what appears to be a carve out for Amazon. So they may be able to open their cashless, uh, cashierless go stores in Philadelphia and not have to comply with this ordinance that everybody else has to comply with. So, I mean, again, you know, as we've as we've talked about on the show, one of the big problems with Amazon and and with monopoly in general is that these companies start to set the rules for us instead of the other way around, uh, start to run government for their own ends. I think the other thing that was has been really striking in the news the last couple of weeks is um, sort of examples of how much Amazon sets the rules for the market, the quote market, because it's really not a market anymore if if a private actor decides who gets to play and who doesn't and on what terms. So one of the ways that this has shown up is Amazon recently did this big you know, purge of companies off of its vendor-seller system. So, uh, you know, companies that had been selling Amazon products, a lot of manufacturers and and brands, uh, suddenly overnight, you know, kind of got these letters that 
uh, by the way, we're not reordering. And if you want to sell to us, you need to go move to this other platform. You need to use the third-party seller platform, or you need to register for this other thing. Hugely disruptive to these businesses who you know rely on Amazon in many cases for more than half of their online sales because that's how dominant the company is, uh, in some cases more even. Um, and suddenly they were completely scrambled uh, and everything was thrown up the air. And it's sort of unclear exactly what Amazon's motivations are in doing this or what the outcomes will be for different uh, companies that are dependent on it. But it just as an illustration of its power uh, was pretty, pretty remarkable. I worked for a, a used bookstore previously, and they sell on Amazon um, in, in part because they felt they had no other choice after Amazon bought the platforms that they used to use to sell books. Um, and when talking to them, I, I just get a sense that they actually ran, I believe, three different marketplaces on Amazon because at any given week, one of them would just be shut down arbitrarily. And the way you're describing this, I mean, it actually seems to me that one of the dangers here isn't necessarily Amazon intentionally behaving in a predatory way. It's more that the people who are making these decisions you know, they don't really have much incentive to worry about the repercussions. And they might just be in a meeting and saying, oh, let's try this thing out. And not realizing that thousands of businesses have their bottom lines changed by that. You know, it's almost like when you give a, a toddler the reins of power, I'm less motivated, I'm less interested in the motivations for what they do than the consequences that I'm deeply worried about. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right in, to a degree in the sense that it, it's just problematic when one company has that kind of power and can either intentionally or inadvertently uh, disrupt things for other players and, and effectively through those choices pick winners and losers. I mean, you know, like this is supposed to be, you know, a, a market is supposed to be something that's structured by democratic rules. Like we set the terms in which... Um, in which markets happen. And then when you're within those terms, you know, you, you're free to strike up uh, deals with one another. Uh, but there's sort of this larger set of rules. And when you have a company that starts making those rules, uh, you know, you're no longer really operating in a kind of democratic fashion. And that's just fundamentally problematic. But I would say, you know, as a kind of longtime Amazon watcher, a lot of these things do, as, as we watch them play out, um, are intentional. You know, they do, in effect, uh, build Amazon's market power or give it more leverage over suppliers or, you know, there there is a, a, a science behind what it is that they're doing. Stacey, so I was just curious if you could address very quickly uh, Senator Blumenthal, uh, U.S. Senator Blumenthal, recently sent a letter to Amazon about one of the provisions in their contracts to sellers. And, and what were the implications of that? Yeah, so Amazon uh, has had this provision in its contract with the sellers that operate on its platform. It's often referred to as a most favored nation contract, and it says you have to have the lowest prices on Amazon. You can't go to another platform and have lower prices. You, we always have to at least match the lowest price that you're selling your item out there uh, for. And what that effectively means is that you know, another, say you wanted to, uh, say Etsy or another company wanted to come along and expand what they're doing and create, 
know, a platform that was competing with Amazon, they might do that by, for example, lowering the fees that they charge sellers to, to less than what Amazon charges, then enabling those sellers to offer their products at a lower price. And that might be a strategy for gaining customers and moving them from Amazon over. But if Amazon has blocked that, you know, you essentially have Amazon saying, we're going to keep raising our fees and we're going to block you from uh, taking advantage of lower priced platforms to offer customers a lower cost somewhere else. Um, so Senator Blumenthal uh, raised a question about that in, in a letter, and ultimately Amazon has uh, nixed the policy. It seems to me that one of the commonalities across all of our work at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance is that as we shine a light on something that these powerful entities do not want to have it shown on, even if we can't get a good rule, the mere act of shining light on it can make it better. Yeah, I think that's right. And and I think one of the things that needs to happen is that we need to sort of surface more of these ways that Amazon is using its market power to undermine competition uh, and you know, hopefully get more members of Congress raising these questions with antitrust authorities. You know, why aren't you looking into this? This is what businesses in my district are experiencing. Uh, those kinds of questions, I think, can both you know, move the companies perhaps, but can also move the agencies and get better decisions about mergers, better rulemaking uh, to really rein these things in. So a couple of quick recommendations that, that John and I have. Stacy's been uh, only working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. <laughs> and and Stacy also was preparing for a retreat. You know, Stacy and John are the co-directors of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And I have to say that, that this, this um, uh, the day that we took with all of our staff members, we have an incredible staff and it's really, it's really great. I'm, I'm just really proud to be here. Um, and so actually in that vein, <laughs> the recommendation I have comes from one of the best follows that, that I know on Twitter, which is a guy named John F. Farrell, who always seems to have just a few more followers than I do. Um, John, you actually just tweeted out this story that I was just amazed by from Idaho Press. Boise has the largest geothermal system in the country. Here's how it works. And it's about this district heating system in Boise. And it's, it's fascinating. Um, it, it, it dramatically lowers the cost of heating for buildings in the downtown. And the only thing I could think about as I was reading that was how I sometimes get a reaction from people like cities building their own broadband networks. Cities can't do important things. They can't do complicated things. They, you know, like cities are just uh, incompetent. And, and this is just a reminder of all the things that cities do often under the radar that people don't even appreciate that work so well and, and they're just kind of hidden from sight. So, so um, we'll have a link to this in the, um, in the notes, but but it's also a reminder that cities actually do really great things, and they don't often get appreciation for it. Well, I changed my recommendation idea while you were talking, Chris, but just wanted to say that I'm looking forward to reading Naomi Klein's short book on Puerto Rico on the plane as I travel there for a conference, because I her work previously on disaster capitalism highlights the tension between the big companies that so often try to create the rules for the market and the communities that are trying to uh, do the best that they can. And so it, I think it'll be a very relevant read for the discussion that I'm going to there for uh, looking at how you redesign the energy system in Puerto Rico to be more in service to its people. Thank you for, for joining us, Stacy and John. Thank you for letting me host one last time before uh, people now can directly comment and I will be in the background for future episodes. Thanks, Chris. This has been great. Thanks for chairing the conversation. 
Thanks, Chris. Good to talk to you, Stacey. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what was discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. If you like this podcast, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is edited by me, Lisa Gonzalez, and I also produce the show along with Hibba Murray and Zach Freed. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. Please join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Thank you.